Deuteronomy 5.18, you must not commit adultery. You may be seated as we pray. Lord God Almighty, as we gather here this morning, Lord, as we come to hear your words, Lord, as we come to partake of the bread of communion, Lord, we are reminded that it is not my words that we are hearing this morning. Lord, I am but a vessel, a conduit, for words that are far more important, far more prescient and relevant than mine. I pray that as we hear your words this morning, Lord, that your word would do what it does well and create life. I pray that it would stir up the hearts of those who are here. pray that it would stir up my heart. Lord, convict those whose hearts need to be convicted. Encourage those, O oh Lord God, whose hearts need to be encouraged. But above all, pray that you would make your name great this morning. O oh Lord, our God. In Christ's name, because of his death and resurrection, we pray these things. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? I heard two people mutter the word good ever so quietly. Are, are, we, are we really doing that bad this morning? Are we, are we tired? Are we awake? Are we good? Yes. All right. So five people are good. That's great. So hang on. I'm going to adjust this. It is a note stand and also a coffee stand. And I'll let you guess which one of those is more important. Anyway, so this is, this is the month of August. Um, God's reminder to us that every good thing must come to an end as we look forward to... Wendy, Wendy is not... Uh, you disagree? Okay, Wendy disagrees. As we look forward to school starting for some of us and the three months of good weather in Michigan coming to an end, I, I am filled, at least, with, with a hopeful expectation of the world that is to come in which... You know, we, we don't have to, you know, see things end where we can experience eternity with all of the good things that God has for us. But maybe that's just me. Maybe you guys love fall. And see, I don't mind fall. I, I, don't, I don't like winter. It's just too long. It's just like if it were like a month shorter and summer were a month longer, I think I'd be good. But anyway, that's completely irrelevant to my sermon this morning. So we are talking this morning about sex, everyone's favorite topic. The seventh commandment, as we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, uh, that's been our summer sermon series, uh, we're kind of at the point in there where we're looking at the commands in the book of Deuteronomy. We haven't spent the entire time looking at God's commands. We spent the first little bit talking about what it means to be part of God's chosen people. We talked about what it means to be redeemed by God. We talked about God's work in his creation to try to undo the curse of Adam and Eve, to try to continue the project that he started with them and that kind of got derailed, to continue the work of, of blessing the world and, and bringing blessing to the world, the, what God intended to do through Adam and Eve. And then when that got sidetracked, he was going to do it through Abraham. And we were really dealing with the promise to Abraham that God would raise up children to him. A great nation would come to Abraham, and God would bless them. God would use them to be a blessing on the earth. Deuteronomy continues that theme. The children of Israel were children of Abraham, and Deuteronomy is really a book about what it means to live in that 
blessing. God gives them commands. He sets before them a blessing and a curse. And the commands can be summed up if we're not going to go through each and every command, and we're not going to for the summer sermon series. The commands can be summed up by the Ten Commandments, and so we're kind of hitting a few of the Ten Commandments on our way through. So we're on the Seventh Commandment today. Thou shalt not commit adultery, if you learned it in the King James Version as I did. There are, I think, two forces at work kind of in our, in our cultural background, if you will, that inform how we read this passage. The first one is the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And this is, both of these things I think you guys are going to be familiar with, but they're worth talking about. The sexual revolution of the 1960s, right? So after World War II, after all of the soldiers come back, and after the baby boomer generation springs up, and you guys are well acquainted with this, and I learned about it in history books. Sorry, but it's true. And after the baby boomer generation rose up, that generation really started to change a lot of things about the culture that they knew. Some of it really, really good, some of it really, really bad. The 1960s were a really pivotal time in U.S. history. Some really good music was made in the 1960s. That's irrelevant. It's just fact. But in the 1960s, we had the Civil Rights Movement pushing back against decades and centuries of racism and just systematic exclusion of people of color from white spaces. And that was really, 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 really good. But at the same time, you also had this kind of other thing going on, this other revolution called the sexual revolution, which was the move away from having sex inside of a marriage and family to having it be a more individualistic thing. Sex is all about me and my pleasure. And really, as long as, as long as we get consent, as long as we're not hurting anybody, then it's okay. That ideology kind of sprung up in the 1960s, and that's really our ideology today. Right? Last week, we talked about murder, right? loving your neighbor as yourself, what it means to truly care for someone else's well-being, someone else who is made in the image of God. And we talked last week about how if you, you know, go on the street, you head to downtown Flint on a beautiful morning like today, and you just poll people and say, hey, is murder wrong? Is assaulting someone else wrong? You know, every single person, unless they're messing with you, are going to say, yeah, of course murder's wrong. Everyone, without fail. That's one of the areas where our cultural ideology, there, there's not a complete lineup, but it, it pretty much lines up with what the Bible teaches. This is an area where that's not really the case. If you go on the street and you ask someone, when is sex right, when is sex wrong, I would imagine the vast majority of people are going to give an answer different than what Scripture teaches. And to preach a message like I'm going to preach this morning, it can, be, it can be a little awkward to kind of push against the dominant culture of the day, but I still think it's worth doing. The dominant culture teaches us that sex is fine at any time, any place, as long as you have consent, as long as you're not hurting anybody. And that, on, the, on the face of it, that looks pretty good. That, that sounds good, right? But as we'll see in a minute, I'm not sure that it really holds up to Scripture. Anyway, that's, that's the one side. That's the one dominant cultural force. The sexual revolution and the modern sexual ethics of today. 
The other one is what I'm going to call purity culture. Now, purity culture is something that kind of arose in the church as a response to the sexual revolution, to the, to the culture change that the sexual revolution brought. We had in, um, in, in the news, I say in the news, it was on Christian Twitter, which I know none of you are on except me, um, but you guys have heard of the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye no one? Anyway, there's a book in the 90s called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, uh, and this is, kind of, again, kind of irrelevant. The, the author of that recently um, kind of left, publicly left Christianity. He says, by all definitions of Christianity, I am no longer a Christian, which is, which is really sad. But he wrote a book when he was 21 years old about dating and sex, and it's kind of typified of a Christian culture that has responded and pushed back to the sexual revolution in ways that are, their intentions are good, coming from, trying to come from a biblical morality, but practically, all that really does, or all that frequently has done, is kind of devolve the conversation. It's to, it has taught people that their worth in life, their worth as a Christian, Right? How much God loves you and will bless you comes down to how many sexual experiences you've had, and you want to have as few as possible until marriage. And it really focuses the conversation on what are we allowed to do. Right? That's the dominant question. When I grew up in youth group, that was the question people asked. Right? Where's the line? Right? Like you have dating couples. They say, where's the line? When can I cross it? When can I not cross it? What am I allowed to do? And it's become a question about where's the line, what's going to happen to me if I cross this line, and we kind of lose the big conversation about what it means to actually have a biblical sexual ethic. It becomes a fear-mongering thing. If you cross this line, then you're going to get AIDS. If you cross this line, then you're going to get syphilis. If you cross this line, then God's not going to bless your marriage. And it becomes a fear-based morality thing. And neither one of these things are good. Both of these tell you lies. And what I want to do this morning is kind of thread through the middle to teach a biblical sexual ethic, to go against the sexual revolution on one hand, to tell you that sex is fine as long as no one's getting hurt, to go against purity culture on the other hand that says what really matters is what you've done and what you haven't done, and you know God's never going to bless you if you've crossed X, Y, or Z line. And I want to find a middle way from what Scripture teaches. I found that kind of both sides of this boil the conversation down to what we're allowed to do without talking about what that has to do with blessing. One of the themes throughout the book of Deuteronomy that we've tried to emphasize, that I've tried to emphasize, is the theme that you know, God's commands are not just a series of hoops to jump through in order to earn God's favor. Right? They are, in fact, choices about whether or not we want to experience God's blessing or no. If we want to experience God's blessing, we will live in the way that he has prescribed for us. Right? When God gives us the Ten Commandments, it's not a test to just see whether or not we'll obey him. It is, do you really want to be blessed as you go and you live in this land? Do you really want to live in the way that God has for you? Do you really want to experience that blessing? If so, listen and live. Hear the words that are being proclaimed. And if you do them, if you take them to heart, and if you follow the commands that God is teaching us, then we can live. So where is the blessing 
in the command to not commit adultery? Where is the blessing inside Scripture's other commands about what it means to be married, what it means for us to have you know, a gender of man and woman, what it means for us to have a biblical sexual life. Where's the blessing in that? Because if we lose sight of the blessing, then it can just seem like God's a divine buzzkill. Whether you're someone on the sexual revolution side who says, I want to do all these things, but God says I can't do them. Or whether you're a teenager in youth group just trying to figure things out and say, I want to do all these things, but God tells me that I can't. Where is the blessing? A few, a uh, couple months ago, we played Jenga at game night. You guys remember this? Play Jenga in the room right over there. So for those of you who don't know, which I, I would imagine all of you do, Jenga is a game where you have kind of th- like three different square logs and you kind of stack them, you know, in alternating ways on top of each other to build like this little mini skyscraper. And then you go around a circle, you take turns to try to push out little blocks and try to keep the tower from falling. Like you push them out and then you set them on top. And because there's three blocks, it can use, like the tower can usually stand on two blocks, sometimes even one block a level, uh, but it clearly can't stand on no blocks. And eventually, once you've pushed out all of the soft blocks, then you get to the point where you push out all of the really important central blocks. And really, the, the name of the game, the, the secret to it, is to try to figure out which of those little bricks, which of those little logs, which ones of those are you know, just kind of chilling in there, maybe they're a little shorter, there's not a lot of weight on them, which ones you can push out easily, and which ones of those are a little wider, which ones of those are bearing a lot of weight, because you want to push out the ones that will come out easily, but every so often there's a block that you think, you think you can just push it out, no problem, and I've, I've had a couple of these, you're like, no, I've got this, and then you push it, and you're like, oh boy, there's, there's weight on this, and once you touch it, you can't go back. I think in our culture, a biblical sexual ethic is kind of like one of those little Jenga blocks. At first glance, it might seem like you can just push it out no problem. Right? We don't actually need this. But I think if we dive into it, we'll find out that it's actually foundational for what it means to live as a society that experiences God's blessing. Going back, as we, as we always do, it seems like, to Genesis 1 and 2 where God created the world in his perfect intentions. There's a lot in the couple verses that I'm about to read to you, but I'm just going to focus on a couple lines. At some point, I need to like preach through like a 10-week series on Genesis 1 and 2, but that's not this morning. We're just going to spend a couple minutes there. So this is, this is God creating the world in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, after our likeness, so that they may rule over all the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. We talked about image last week. For those who don't remember, image means God's representatives. So God put representatives on the earth to rule over all of these animals, over all, everything that's going on, on his behalf, to kind of keep growing the world into a bigger and better garden, to just kind of keep expanding the thing so that um, what the, everything that was created and the creator can kind of live in perfect harmony. That's the idea. The goal is harmony, so Adam and Eve are set as God's representatives to rule over all creation. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply 
Have lots of kids. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and then every creature that moves on the ground. Be fruitful and multiply. At the center of God's vision for what the world would become was a humanity, was a man and woman united together in marriage, having kids spreading throughout the world, more and more kids, multiplying, being blessed throughout the world in order to bring the entire world under God's subjection so that they could bring it all into the blessing of God, so that they could be a giant family of God in order to bring blessing. One of the dominant themes throughout the entire Bible is God bringing a people in for himself. And that starts right in the very first chapter. God wants a people to have fellowship with. That's why God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply. Don't just, you know, have dominion over all the fish. Don't just rule. Don't just do all these things. But in order to help you accomplish that, make a people for God. Make a people so that God can have perfect fellowship with them. And if we, you know, in Genesis 3, we kind of see that vision derailed a little bit. We, it resumes throughout the rest of the Bible and kind of finds its completion at the end. But in Genesis 3, it kind of derails. But if it didn't, we would see Adam and Eve having kids having grandkids, and slowly kind of bringing the garden, right, tending the garden, taking care of the animals, and slowly bringing all of creation on earth, I believe other planets, right, slowly bringing all of that into a sacred place where they could have fellowship with God. That was the idea. Now, of course, we know that they didn't do that, right? They, they rejected God's plan, and so that's why God comes to Abraham, as we've, as we've talked about throughout the series. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, right? Adam and Eve brought cursing on the land. I'm going to bring blessing on the land because of you and because of your kids. God doesn't end the idea of making a family. He continues that idea. And he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, you're going to have kids. Now for Abraham, that was, that was a big deal because Abraham was old and his wife was old, and they were like, how on earth are we going to have kids? Because she was like 75, and, you know, they wound up, I should know this because I'm a pastor, but they, they wound up having kids right when he was around 100. They were very, very old, and God miraculously provided kids for them. But the theme of Abraham's descendants is a central theme throughout the Bible. God promises it, and promises it, and promises it, and when they finally come, it's a blessing for him. Because that, that great nation that would descend from him, this, this nation that God would use to bring blessing on the earth, like the nation that was envisioned in Genesis 1, would finally happen. Moving on to the book of Exodus, if we can. So over the history, uh, after Abraham for a couple generations, they, you know, they did their thing. And then his great-grandkids moved down to the nation of Egypt, because there was a famine in the land. And they stayed in the nation of Egypt for a long time. And that's where they were enslaved. But before they were enslaved, the Bible tells us this from Exodus 1-7. And sometimes we kind of skip over this, but this is, this is kind of central. Don't miss this. Exodus 1-7. The Israelites, however, were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied and became extremely strong so that the land was filled with them. 
Does that language sound familiar? That language goes back to Genesis 1, right? So the Israelites, when they were in Egypt, before they were enslaved, they experienced not really the full, the full vision of what God had planned for the world, but they experienced a little bit of it. They were, they were fruitful. They were multiplied, right? They experienced great blessing in the land of Egypt. And at the center of it, once again, is family. God making a family for himself. Originally, it was going to be from Adam and Eve. Then it winds up being from Abraham. God bringing a people into fellowship with him to bring blessing over all of the creation. That theme is continued in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, this is what Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 say. These words I am commanding you today must be kept in mind. And you must teach them to your children. And speak of them as you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, as you lie down, as you get up. You should tie them as a reminder on your forearm and fasten them as symbols on your forehead. Inscribe them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. There may be a little bit of hyperbole here, right? Kind of emphasizing some vandalism, right? Write all the commands on the, on the door frames. But the idea is that God's commands, right, the story of what God has done should be so ingrained in how you teach your kids and how you bring them up so that you bring them up to be participants in this group of people that has fellowship with God, the nation of Israel. That's the idea. That is central to this. God's vision for humanity, and this is core to what we are talking about this morning, God's vision for humanity is that of a family, a man who marries a woman and have kids and raise those kids to have fellowship with God, to be part of God's big eternal family. That's why the command against committing adultery, that's why it's such a big deal. You know, we as, we as Westerners kind of read through the book of Deuteronomy and we, we see like the penalty for murder is being put to death. And we're like, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. Maybe, you know, some of us in here are kind of iffy on the death penalty, and that's a different conversation. But, like, it's kind of parallel, right? You can kind of get it. You read through the book of Deuteronomy, and the command for committing adultery is being put to death. That seems, that seems a little harsh, right? At least to us. I, I, don't, I don't feel like the U.S. should institute a law that says, you know, if you commit adultery, you should be put to death. But in the book of Deuteronomy, adultery is taken incredibly seriously because adultery separates families. It separates that core unit that God has intended to build and to use to bring people into his big divine family. Adultery tears that apart. It's to go against God's intention for the world. Because sex, as God has designed it, is a core part of what it means to have a family and to be in a marriage. To separate sex from marriage and childbearing is to pervert it and deny what it really is. It's designed for marriage. And so anytime you look at where sex is removed from marriage, you will see scarring as it's ripped out of how it was intended to be. Anytime you take sex out of a committed relationship, you see emotional 
scarring. Anytime you see someone try to relegate sex to a completely casual kind of thing, you know, I'm just going to you know, have emotion-free casual sex, it doesn't work. Because sex is designed to be part of a loving commitment. And anytime you see a perversion of God's intended for sex, it comes with, maybe it causes emotional scarring, maybe it's the result of emotional scarring, but that scarring is always there. And you can try to ignore it, you can try to brush it aside. But anytime we try to live in a way that's against the way that God has told us is the way of blessing, we experience that curse. We experience that emotional scarring. That's why casual sex, homosexual practice, and pornography are wrong and condemned clearly in the Bible. Because to rip sex from God's intention for marriage and family is to rip it out of its blessing. It's to pervert what God has intended for us. The culture, as kind of summed up in the sexual revolution, lies and tells you that you can separate sex from marriage and childbearing without consequence. But it's not true. I think it's important at this point... um, this, if, I were, if I were pastoring another congregation, I might skip over this next five, ten minutes, but I think it's really important based on, based on who is in the room. There is in this room a large percentage of people, much more so in a normal congregation, of people who are single, who were never married, of people who never had kids. And so the question that may be running through your minds is if having kids, if being in a marriage relationship is the way to having blessing, then am I not really experiencing God's blessing if I never married, if I never had kids? It's a fair question. Here's the answer to that. We have two different ways, two different ways that someone can come into the church through baptism. Say, where are you going with this? Hold on, we'll get there. There's two different ways, two different reasons we baptize people in the Presbyterian church. If you go to other churches, they'll do different things different ways. But there's two different ways that we do it. Baptism is at its core, and everyone kind of agrees with this, becoming part of the people and the family of God. Whether it's a local church, whether it's the big church as a whole, you know, again, different people disagree on this. But it's becoming part of the family of God. There's two reasons we baptize people in the Presbyterian church. The first is we baptize our children. Right? When our children are born, right? a few months ago, you know, my son, who, you know, just a little baby, we brought him up here. I was standing right here, like physically right here. And my wife and I, who's, she's also a pastor in this church, she, she helped me baptize him. Right? We baptized him together. And it was a beautiful picture of my son joining both this congregation and the church as a whole. Right? He is one of God's own. It doesn't necessarily mean that he is you know, saved and on his way to heaven. He may be a believer. I don't know. It's up to God to put that in his heart. But he is part of us. He is part of the family that God promised to, God promised to Abraham. You know, God promised Abraham a great nation, and my son is part of that family. The other way... The other reason we baptize someone is if they weren't baptized, if they were on the outside of the church, never really were a Christian at all, and they come in and they repent of their sins and they believe and they make a profession of faith, then we baptize them because we are bringing them into the family. 
Right? Two different reasons, one because someone's a baby, the other because someone comes in and makes a profession of faith. But the same action, baptizing them so that God unites them to his people. Those of you who are single, those of you who are childless, yes, there is blessing to be found in raising children to be part of the kingdom of God as the Israelites were commanded to do, right? Write, them, write all the commands on your doorposts so that you can bring your children into the kingdom so that they can be part of this family. There's also blessing to be found, and don't miss this. Don't, there's also blessing to be found by reaching out to those who are on the outside of God's family who may or may not be related to you, in preaching the gospel to them, in teaching them to bring them into the family of God. There's the same blessing available. So if you're single, if you don't have kids, recognize the opportunity that you have. Don't don't feel excluded from blessing. And I I fully admit that the church, just kind of as we exist in America, we, we kind of push single people to the outside and pretend that your worth and value isn't having kids, and it's not true. You have an opportunity to bring people in to the family of God. And I know some of you in here do that very, very well. You reach out to those who are on the outside and you love them as if they were your own children and it's beautiful. The same blessing is to be found by bringing people into the family of God that way and by having kids. We have the sexual revolution on one side and the, and the lie that the culture tells you that sex is fine, it, there's no consequences as long as no one's getting hurt. On the other side, you have, you have purity culture. And I know I'm you know, painting with a broad brush here. But you have purity culture. This is my experience. This is the experience of many others who grew up in the church. Purity culture that tells you your worth and value is in what lines you cross. Right? That's, that's really the most important thing. Whether or not you've done X, Y, or Z sexually. There's an illustration that's really stuck out to me. Uh, and it's really, it's really kind of governed my, my life for the last 10 or so years. And I imagine that it will be you know, a core part of my thinking as I, as I go on and finish my ministry, hopefully decades down the road. There's a pastor, uh, and he tells this story. This is his story. It's not mine. Uh, the guy's name is Matt Chandler, for those of you who know who he is. But he tells the story about how he, was, he befriended, uh, I believe it was his neighbor, uh, a woman who was a single mom, not really in the church at all, but you know, he tried to reach out to her and love her and pull her in, and you know, he was just like a young 21-year-old too, and they were kind of the same age. He was try- just trying to bless her. And he, w- he was in college at this point in time, and he brought her to like a college-age event. And the speaker for this college-age event was really fit into that really legalistic purity culture mold. This speaker told the story, and the illustration that he used, like he took out, he took out a rose, a beautiful rose, right? It had, you know, all of these, you know, petals arranged in a beautiful way, and it was brand new, and it smelled beautiful. And this speaker, you know, fully legalistic in the purity culture thing, he, he takes out the rose, and he smells it and enjoys it. And he says, this rose is really pretty, isn't it? He said, this rose is amazing. He said, this rose is so amazing, and there were, you know, like a thousand people in the room or something. He just kind of tosses it in the crowd. He's like, you guys just, you know, pass it around and smell it and enjoy it. And then he goes on to preach a message that really didn't talk about the grace of Jesus at all. 
He preached a message that really emphasized that, oh, if you cross this line, you're going to get an STD. If you cross this line, no one's really going to want you. You know, people really just want a virgin to be married to. If you cross this line, this is going to happen. If you cross this line, this is going to happen. Didn't talk about the cross, didn't talk about the gospel, didn't talk about the love of Jesus at all. And this rose goes around the corner, and, you know, about half an hour later, as he was wrapping up his talk, probably wasn't a sermon, it was a talk. It's not a sermon unless you preach the gospel. As he's wrapping up his talk, he asked for the rose back. And because it had passed around this, this huge room of people, it was wilted, petals were falling off. It looked nothing like the beautiful rose that was there half an hour before. And the man who was speaking said, who would want this? And the pastor who I heard this illustration from, who had brought his his single mother friend in to help her hear the gospel, the way he tells it is it took everything within him not to stand up and shout, Jesus! Jesus wants the rose! Jesus died! For the rose. Jesus died for the broken. Jesus died for the ones who break boundaries, for the ones who transgress transgress God's command. Jesus died for them. And if we're going to be a church that just sets up a bunch of boundaries and says, oh, you have to do this, oh, you have to do this, oh, you have to do this, and then just reject people when they cross the boundaries, we're not doing our jobs. Jesus died for the broken, beat up rose. We read a story earlier from the book of Luke about how Jesus was anointed by a sinful woman. I love, I love, I love that phrase, a sinful woman. If we were going uh, we to translate this to accurately the modern day, we might say slut or something like that. Pardon my language, but it's in the text. Jesus is anointed by a slut. The town hoe comes wandering into this into this courtyard, they would have um, like they would have religious kind of symposiums. They'd be like eating dinner, but it would be a public event. So they'd be like sitting out in someone's courtyard, and there would be these two religious leaders. It'd be kind of like a publicly televised debate. That's what's going on. That's what's going on here. You know, imagine sitting on your front porch and having a debate with, with the intention that people wander by. So Jesus and this Pharisee are having this religious symposium about you know some who knows point finer point of the the Jewish law. And all of these upstanding Jewish citizens come in to hear, you know, this, this lecture between these two Jewish rabbis, you know, this Pharisee and Jesus. And they come to hear the wisdom of them, and the town slut rolls in. And the Pharisees are like, oh, man. Oh, I'm gonna, I was going to make up a name. I'm not going to make up a name. Oh, man, she's here. What's she doing here? And she walks up to Jesus, and she lets down her hair, which in that culture was actually like, kind of a sexual thing to do. Like, it was, like that's, she was, you know, showing who she was by letting down her hair. And she lets down her hair, they're like, oh boy, what is happening? And then she stoops down and washes Jesus' feet. And internally, all of, these, all of these Pharisees are saying, doesn't he know who she is? Doesn't he know who she is? Isn't it painfully obvious who she is? Why doesn't he tell her to go away? He's a respectable religious leader. But Jesus accepts the worship that this woman brings. And he tells a story about how someone whose debt has been forgiven, a debt of 500 pieces of silver and a debt over 50 pieces of silver, both of them are forgiven. Who is more grateful? 
There are those of us in this room who have been in church for years, our entire lives. You know, cult, like all of our sins are culturally acceptable sins, right? They're sins that, you know, oh, maybe I gossip a little bit too much, and, you know, that's okay. And it's so easy for us to see ourselves as better than the ones who have also been forgiven, but who struggle with different things than us. To break God's commands is to break God's commands, yes. To set aside God's intention for marriage and for sexuality, it's not a good thing and it's not okay and it always comes with emotional scarring. But because of Jesus, it doesn't ruin you. Because of Jesus, it doesn't make you unsuitable for marriage. It doesn't ruin your life. There is grace to be found because of what Jesus Christ has done. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And it doesn't matter what you've done. You can still receive forgiveness from Jesus Christ. Mercy there is still offered. No matter how far away that you've strayed, no matter how far away you've gone, no matter how dark that deep corner of your heart is that no one knows about, there is grace and forgiveness to be found. Because no matter how beat up that rose is, Jesus wants that rose. So as we read this commandment, the seventh commandment, as we're reminded of the importance of marriage and family, let us not pivot to a purity culture that tells us our worth and value is found in how many lines we've crossed. Let's not pivot to a purity culture that tells us that you are damaged goods if you have done X, Y, or Z. Let us run instead to the cross of Jesus Christ, who loved us, who saved us, who died for us, while we were still sinners. Let us praise God for that.